All right, we're returning to our short series in the book of Acts, so I'll ask you to take your Bibles tonight and turn in them to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, we're going to continue our our series on our love for the church and what that looks like. You remember in the context of Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is on his way, at least ultimately, to go to Jerusalem. He's proceeding from Corinth, and he had been there asking them to participate in the giving of a gift to the church in Jerusalem. He passes through Ephesus, where there was quite a stir in the town because of the preaching of the Apostle Paul, as the idol worshipers of the day were finding it difficult even to sell idols because of Paul's message and people were getting saved and no longer going to the little shops and buying the idols from the men. And it seems that no matter where Paul goes, there's some kind of trouble that ensues and someone is plotting to kill the Apostle Paul. So in Acts 20, we find Paul making his way down through Macedonia, purposefully taking the long way back to Jerusalem in order that he might uh, gather more gift for the church, but also to thwart those who are trying to kill him. And I believe even more so, though, to get more of a gift so Jerusalem would have a greater gift. Obviously, Paul didn't necessarily want to die at any kind of point. He was content to die. We know that from his letter in the Philippians, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. But Paul knew that he uh, had this to bring to Jerusalem, wanted to get it to Jerusalem, and so he wanted to take every pains in order to do that. And that would not only help them through their tough times that they were facing by the people that were opposing them in that city, but also would promote greater unity in, in the church between the Jews and the Gentile believers. A few weeks ago when we were here, we... We were challenged in our own lives, at least I hope we were challenged, by evaluating our own love for the church, asking ourselves the question, do we individually, personally, in our own Christian lives, love the church? And we were seeing how that, how we could evaluate ourselves through Paul's example. And remember that I pointed out to us that the Apostle Paul had exhibited his love for the church in three particular ways, at least as we were seeing it unfold here in Acts chapter 20. And particularly in the first six verses, he was guarding the truth. He was gratefully giving, or at least that idea of giving, as he went through the churches to gather this gift for Jerusalem, and he was sacrificially persevering. And we said that each one of us has a sacred responsibility as Christians, right? We have a sacred responsibility, number one, of passing on the truth to others from our generation to others. To do that is to love the church. To share what we know with others is to actually love what Christ loved. It is to love His body, the church. None of us can be just spiritual baskets. None of us can be that spiritual cul-de-sac, if you will, in which the truth comes into it, but never exits it, never goes out of it, never is passed on to others. The best way to guard the truth is to pass it on, as we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 2 a few weeks ago, that we pass it on to other faithful ones who can do the same also. 
That is one sense, but also the love of the church will show in the privilege that we have to give. We, we love the truth, we pass on the truth, we guard the truth, but we also have the privilege to give, not just of our economic riches, but as we saw more importantly, of ourselves for the work of the ministry. We have all, Ephesians 4 tells us, been gifted for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body, so that we all attain a, a unity of the Spirit, so we all grow together, and that is giving of ourselves. We saw that giving is all about sacrifice. That was the life of the Apostle Paul, one in which he sacrificed himself for the benefit of the church, for the benefit of God's people. You notice in verses 1 to 3, after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia, and when he had gone through the districts and given them much exhortation, he came to Greece, and there he spent three months with them. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews there, as he was there, he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So here is Paul giving of himself everywhere he went, sacrificing himself just for the benefit of the building up of the church. And so we love the church through guarding the truth. We love the church through gratefully giving of ourselves as well as that which God has blessed us with. And thirdly, we guard or love the church by sacrificially persevering. Sacrificially persevering. Verse 4 to 6 says, and he was accompanied by these other men, right? Sopater and Pyrrhus and Aristarchus and Segundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus, all these men, but these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us in Troas. So Paul is, is with these men, persevering and going on. That's what we mean when we talk about sacrificial persevering. We just mean we don't give up. Paul never gave up. Everywhere Paul went, he faced trouble. It was difficult. It was Always a trial, always a struggle, always something to, to deal with, and yet he gave, never gave up. He, and for that matter, all of those who were with him, all of them sacrificially persevered through every obstacle so that they could finish the course. So they could do what God had called them to do. Didn't matter if there were threats, didn't matter if there was beatings, didn't matter if the discouragements that came upon them, in their own heart, in their own life, the doubts that they had, endless struggles and people problems that they faced everywhere, they continued to persevere. That's what love does. That's what love does. We love the church, so we continue to persevere. Love pursues the good of others with a tenacious, persistent relentlessness. Never gives up. So we ask the question, do we love the church? When we evaluate ourselves, when we look at ourselves in light of the church and not just the building, not the place, but the people of God, and particularly here, we are part of this church locally, this body representing the body of Christ here in this place. Do we love the church? Do we love God's people? And if we do, if we say we love God's people, if we are like Peter in John 21 saying, Lord, you know I love you, then does it show outwardly through our guarding of the truth, through our giving, and through our sacrificial persevering? Does it show? 
Now tonight, I want us to just parachute ourselves back, if you will, back into the text, particularly beginning in verse 6. Because verse 6 tells us, you notice, they sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. So it was after the days of unleavened bread. The days of unleavened bread are the Passover week. Why was it called the days of unleavened bread? Well, because we understand from the Old Testament it was speaking about the haste in which the Jews had left Egypt when God called them out in the ten plagues. And the tenth plague was to take the firstborn of every animal and and family that was there in Egypt who did not have the blood over the mantle of the doorposts of the house. They were to leave in haste because Herod was going to say, or the king of Egypt was going to say, let them out. So they couldn't wait for the bread to rise. It was haste. It was called unleavened bread. So this was the commemorative celebration of these days. And Paul is traveling his, with his companions and Luke to Troas. They're going to Troas within five days. That's where they came. They sailed from Philippi after those days, came to Troas within five days, and then stayed in Troas another seven days. Now, Troas was the chief city in northwest Asia. Asia Minor, to be, in, to be particular. It was off the coast of Mycenae, which was a Roman province in Asia. And it was here and from here, you notice, that Paul walked to another place called Asos. You notice down in verse 13, but we going ahead to the ship set sail for Asos, intending from there to take Paul on board. So Paul wasn't on board as they sailed to Asos. Paul rather took foot. He was walking to Asos, where Paul would meet the others of verse 4 that we already saw, those other men that were traveling with him. The name Troas is not confined to the city itself, but was also applied to the surrounding district of that area. Many of the Seleucid kings of the day made their homes in Troas. In fact, in 133 B.C., Troas came into the possession of the Romans, and later, during the, region, uh, the reign of Augustus, it was made a Roman colony, independent, by the way, of the Roman governor of that province of Asia. If you were there today, you would know it by the name Eski-Stambul. So it's part of Turkey, the area in Turkey that we know as Istanbul. Unfortunately, much of the ruins are no longer there. They're not visible anymore. Many of the columns that were there in the public buildings have been taken away, and they were transported, really, to Constantinople for use in the construction of a mosque there known as the Yeni Valede Jami Mosque. So Troas was a, was a, a great city and is now all but extinct from view. But in Acts 20, we find this rather incredible account of what is one of the first church services to what is now the new Christian church. Let me read it for us, and then we 
can begin to discuss it together, beginning in verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight. For there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sitting in a sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. And they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. I don't know about you, but this strikes me as not being your normal everyday week church service. It strikes me that way for several reasons, let alone the obvious. First of all, is that they met on the first day of the week. They met on the first day of the week. That was not normal for Jews. In other words, as we see the church develop in the book of Acts, as the church is coming to fruition in the first century, they were in the beginning stages of changing the time in which they met for worship. Verse 7, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together. This is very different. Other than possibly the Gentiles who were not proselyte Jews who may have been in the group, they had not been the day of worship for any of the Jews On the first day of the week, that was not a day for a Jew to worship. It was on the day before the first day of the week. They had a day of rest, and it was on Saturday. But it wasn't necessarily a day of worship. It was a day of rest. But now it's on the first day of the week. Where before, it was the last day of the week. It was the Sabbath day as we know it. The Jewish religious law through Moses given to him by God. The Ten Commandments had set forth the Sabbath day as the day set aside for rest. A day to think about and remember God and what God was requiring of them. But now... Now these people are meeting on the first day of the week. And they're being led in it by the Apostle Paul, one of the foremost Jews. I wonder sometimes when we read through the Bible, we have to think about this. Do you ever think, why the first day of the week? Why the first day of the week? Obviously here in our church, we we have an understanding of that, Right? Have you ever been challenged by someone? You're sharing the gospel with someone or you're talking to someone about church and they say, why is Sunday the day for church? Why is it Sunday? What would you tell them? The Bible doesn't say that, hey, listen, explicitly you worship on Sunday. There's no verse that says that, right? Doesn't the Bible say keep the Sabbath day holy? 
And is the Christian supposed to observe the Sabbath? What do you say for that? Let me give you several reasons why the Sabbath is not for the Christian today. Let me just give you four reasons really quickly. This is not... This is kind of side note information. This is, as my professor in seminary used to say, this is for free. You're not paying for this. Let me give you several reasons why it's not for today. Number one, the Sabbath was not part of the law, or, or it was part of the law given through Moses, and there were God fearing believers before Moses ever came on scene. Right Before Moses ever got the Ten Commandments from God, obviously there were other believers in God before him. So it would be logical to assume that the Sabbath law was something other than a blanket law to cover every Christian who ever has lived and walked on the face of the earth. Because it was given even after there were already Christians on the earth believers in God, and yet it was given in the time of Moses. So that's the first thing. Secondly, even during the days of Moses, even when Moses was leading Israel, and beyond his time, you'll search in vain to find any command in Scripture whereby the Gentile nations are commanded to observe the Sabbath. There's no command in Scripture that says anywhere that any Gentile is commanded to observe the Sabbath. In fact, the command itself was given directly to the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. And so I think right there, that shows that it was for Israel only. But I'll give you a couple more reasons. Third, back in Acts chapter 15, you find the Apostle Paul before the Council of Jerusalem. Paul is on his missionary journeys. He's been preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, and, and there's confusion of what's going on, what's Paul preaching. And so Paul goes back to Jerusalem and meets with the Jerusalem Council, and they lay forth for Paul the rules for the Gentile believers to follow. And it says this, notice in Acts chapter 15, in verse 29, Notice what it says. This is all it says. Well, we'll begin in verse 23. They sent this letter to them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Sicily, uh, Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. So this is, they're writing Jews, or writing to the Gentiles. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, Unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. Here you go. Here's all we're saying to you. Abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourself free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So here's these Gentile believers throughout the region that Paul is at. 
And they're getting a letter from the Jews who have the law of Moses, who grew up under the law of Moses, and they don't tell them at all. Listen, and make sure, by the way, not only do you stay away from things sacrificed to idols and blood and things strangled and these kind of things, but also remember the Sabbath day. Don't forget that. Keep it holy. They don't even say that. So not even the Jerusalem council saw fit to require that of Gentile believers. And then, of course, what did Paul tell the believers in Colossae? Go there for a moment. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He said, therefore, no one is to act as a judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath day things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul says, listen, don't let anybody judge you when it comes to those kinds of things. Don't let everybody set a standard upon you for that kind of thing. So the Sabbath is not for the Christian. Sabbath is not for the Christian, but why Sunday? Why Sunday? There's no more binding Sabbath law. We're not under the Mosaic law in the sense of the as, as God had intended it for Israel, it's no longer necessary for us to observe feasts and the ceremonial laws and festivals like that. Galatians chapter 4 says the same thing. We're, we're under a new covenant. So the new covenant then has its own day. What's the new covenant day? The first day. The first day, and there's good reason for that. <clears throat> and we know the reason for that, but I want to remind you of it by taking us back to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Notice what it says. Now after the Sabbath, verse 1. After the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. We know whose grave that is, don't we? You know, that's the grave of Jesus. Jesus had been in the ground now for three days. This is the grave of Jesus. He dies on Friday. He's placed on the cross. Friday, he's been in the grave through Saturday, and now, which is the Sabbath day, and now it's first day of the week, Sunday morning. So they come to look at the grave. These women are concerned about the body of Jesus. How was the body of Jesus being treated? They had to make haste to get him in the ground quickly because the Sabbath day was coming. Remember, he, he died in the afternoon, late in the afternoon. And finally, he was allowed to be taken off the cross and put in the tomb. And the text says, <clears throat> beginning in verse 2, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. Because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, his garment was like was as white as snow. And the guards who had been assigned to protect the body so that no one would seal it and had made false, make false accusations about a supposed resurrection, they would say, they shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And so the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid. Here's the soldiers, they're standing there in utter fear, utter terror, immovable fear. They're they're fearing for their lives. And the angel says to the woman, hey, by the way, don't worry about those guys. Don't be afraid. 
For I know who you're looking for. You're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here, for he has risen just as he said. Oh, you want empirical proof? You want, you want proof of that? Come, come, let me show you the place where he was lying. It's not there anymore. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear. Obviously, this reverent fear for what they had just saw. Great joy, and they ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, pay attention, that's what the word means. Look, Jesus met them and greeted them. They came up, took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. This is the first response of anybody who had been around Jesus since he died. This is the first response to Jesus. They run to the tomb, they see it empty. When they see Jesus, their first response on this first day of the week is to worship Jesus. They worship him. And then Jesus says to him, Don't be afraid. Go and take my word to the brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. So it's important for us to understand it was on the dawn, on a Sunday morning, the first day of the week, the morning Jesus rose from the dead and appears to, to these ladies, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and he tells them to go and tell his disciples, and they do. And they literally see Jesus, he appears to them, and he greets them, and they come up and take hold of his feet, and they worship him. It's the same reality in all the Gospels. So listen, the first worship service, the first worship service that ever happened in the New Covenant Church was held on a Sunday morning right there near the tomb. I think that's rather telling for us, isn't it? Before this time, before Jesus rose from the dead, Sunday had absolutely zero importance in the Jewish calendar. Zero importance in their life. It was like any other day. It had no particular significance until that event, until the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I find it very satisfying in a way that God decided that Jesus would rise from the dead on the first day of the week, on Sunday. God decided that it would be three days in the grave, not two days, not four days, not two and a half days. God decided exactly to fulfill the prophecy which He had said way before, even as the serpent was on the pole, even as... Those things happened that Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days that when Christ came out of the grave, it would be a Sunday. That's why, go back to Acts chapter 7. That's why in Acts chapter 7, or Acts chapter 20, verse 7, I should say, it says it was on the first day of the week when they were gathered together. This is Resurrection Day. It was truly a day of worship. So that's the first thing that we see that's 
that's odd about this day. It's, it's not the normal day that you see every other time. Now it's the first day of the week. But there's another reason. There's another reason that it wasn't normal. And that is because the obvious one in the text, it's not every day in church where you see someone fall out of a window to their death and be raised back to life. And all of that is overshadowed. All of that is overshadowed by what is to be most preeminent in any church. What is that? The preaching of the Word of God. Notice what the text says again. Paul begins talking to them, verse 7, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. And of course, there were many lamps in the upper room. Obviously, it's dark outside. A lot of people gathered together. The body heat from them would be rising. It would be warm. There was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill. He's sinking into a deep sleep. Paul keeps on talking. He's overcome by sleep, and he falls from the third floor. He's picked up dead. Paul goes down, falls upon him, and after embracing him, he says, don't be troubled. His life is in him. When he's gone, this is probably the most shocking of all. When he's gone back up and had broken bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. Don't you don't you just read that and just kind of shake your head? It's it's shocking. It's shocking. This isn't a commentary about not sleeping in church. It's not, it's not God writing that and say, hey, listen, that's a dangerous occupation. You probably don't want to fall asleep in church, right? Sometimes that happens to us. I remember when I was going through seminary, I was burning the candle at every end a candle could have, schedule-wise, and Dr. MacArthur would be preaching at night, and I was typically nodding off. My wife kept elbowing me. I have a permanent mark right there. But I was exhausted, I mean, great preaching, but I was exhausted. And I, many of those messages, I don't have a clue what he said. But I'm, as a pastor, I, I, I'm glad to see that Paul had someone fall asleep when he was talking. That's, that's comforting to me as a pastor, as someone who speaks with people. I don't know what's going on in life, but I know sometimes that happens. And I think more than anything, this entire event just speaks of the preeminence of the preaching of the Word in any service. In other words, the greatest way we love the church is by hearing and doing the Word of God. By hearing and doing the Word of God. The entire gathering here in this whole thing had had somewhat of a farewell feel, right? Paul is on his way through it is, a, it is a farewell time. They wanted to appropriately say goodbye to Paul, not knowing if they would ever see him again. And so Paul begins to speak. They give Paul the floor. And of course, Paul had a lot to say. He had a lot to say. I think he was probably saying similar things that he had said to all the churches as he was passing through. He was probably trying to encourage them, probably exhorting them about the things they, they needed to know. 
uh, telling him about his own missionary journeys, right? They were certainly probably asking for gifts to give to the church in Jerusalem. And right in the middle of the message, right as Paul's probably hitting the climax of his message, it had already been a long sermon, Eutychus falls out of the window. We don't know exactly why he fell asleep. Tells us a little, little kind of snippets in there. He was sinking into a deep sleep. Paul was talking. I don't know what Paul's voice sounded like. Maybe Paul was like one of my seminary profs who could write books. But man, if you listen to him teach, you'd, he'd, he's like a buzzsaw. It sounded the same the whole time. You'd fall out in a moment. He's sinking into a deep sleep. Candles are there, people are there, the fumes, the lights, the heat of the night. It's obviously the Mediterranean area. It's warm. Whatever the case, sleep came over him and out he goes. Once Eutychus is there, the next second he's not. Elevator going down. Falls to his death. (laughs) It's, It's amazing to me when you read some of the commentators about this passage. Some commentators throughout history have tried to argue that he he really wasn't dead when he hit the ground after falling probably 20 feet. He appeared to be dead, but he really wasn't dead. I think it's safe to say that he was dead. Luke is a doctor. Luke is writing this text. Luke is telling us exactly. Luke was there. I think Luke probably went down and felt the carotid on him. Uh, He's gone. He's dead. Paul comes down, gets on him. They knew he was dead. Eutychus is picked up dead, it says. I mean, that's pretty clear. Picked up dead. He's not breathing. Now, I can imagine what must have gone through the minds of the people. What must have gone through the mind of Paul in the seconds he was falling. I I don't know what they might have thought, right? It it wouldn't have taken him long to get from floor three to floor one. So they didn't have a lot of time to think. I think of what it might be like if someone ever died while I was preaching. The natural response is, okay, stop the service. Service over. Get help immediately, Rudd, right? Most of us would probably say, let's gather together and, and pray for the family, pray for the people, pray for this person. The last thing we would be thinking is, Great, time for a miracle. Let's go down and resume the service after. Right? Let's go outside, find the person. Oh yeah, pick them up. Yeah, put them them in the truck or whatever. Pray for them. Okay, everybody back inside. Let's have the service. We wouldn't be thinking that. But But notice what Paul says to the people. Notice what he says, verse 10. Paul went down, fell upon him. After embracing him, he says, don't be troubled. His life's in him. You know what that literally says? Literally it says this, stop getting all worked up about it. Stop getting all worked up in your own hearts and minds that Eutychus fell out the window. He's alive. And then amazingly, verse 11, when he got, when he had gone back up, Paul says, okay, he's alive. Tend to him. Paul gets back upstairs, breaks bread, he eats. And he talks with them a long while. It's interesting. He had already 
prolonged his message until midnight. I'm not sure when he started. I'm not sure if this was an hour into it or if this was three hours into it, but he goes back upstairs and talks with them a long while. I'm sure much of the conversation is, man, did you see that happen? What, what happened there? Why? What? No, no, don't sit in that window. You know, somebody's probably saying that. Paul preaches more and they take away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. Wow, what a service. I mean, that'd be all over the internet. You should have been at church tonight. Twitter would be flying. Doesn't it seem strange that they kept going on in worship? Doesn't that seem strange? It does to me. I mean, I, when I read the scriptures, I just ask these kind of questions. It just seems strange to me. Doesn't it seem strange? Well, not really. Not really. If we understand what's preeminent. Right? It's not really strange if we understand what's preeminent in the church. Right? What is to be preeminent in the church is the truth of Christ. It's the Word of God that brings life. Whether it's in those who are spiritually dead, or even in these days when God was showing miracles like this in this miraculous kind of way in those who are physically dead. It's the Word of God that brings life. As a pastor and preacher, I sometimes search in vain for illustrations for sermons. I'm not that talented as an illustrator, but these people had just seen one right before their eyes. I mean, this would have been in a whole lot of Paul's sermons, I would imagine. The believers are edified. They are uplifted. They're greatly comforted. The truth was proclaimed. God was glorified. Why? Because God's Word is preeminent. The implication from the text is, yes, this guy falls out the window. Yes, he's dead. Paul raises him back to life by, by some means in which his life interacts with him and the Word of God God uses that as a, as a picture for them, and they're greatly comforted, the boy's alive, and Paul goes on preaching with them. So the implication is that not all the people left. In fact, the implication is they all went with Paul right back upstairs and continued on. Why? Because God's Word's preeminent. It's the Lord's day. It's the first day of the week. The first day of the week. The day God set aside for them to honor Him through worship. We worship God when we hear His Word and when we follow His Word. So the next day, what happens? Paul begins his journey for Miletus. Verses 13 to 16. But we, now Luke has included himself in that pronoun, the we, we, all these, these men, and Paul, we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Asos, intending from there to take Paul on board. Why? Because he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. See, these guys with Luke get on the boat. They leave Paul there. Paul is going by land. It's, we're not told why Paul wanted to go by land. They all sailed to Asos. Paul is walking there. And when he met us at Asos, verse 14, we took him on board. And then we sailed to Mytilene. 
And sailing from there, we arrived the following day in Chios. And the next day we crossed over to Samos. And the, next, and the following day we came to Miletus. Why? Because Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia because he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost. You know what day Pentecost is? Paul's hurrying there for the feast, the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover meal. 50 days after that Passover Sabbath. That means that it always falls on the first day of the week. Pentecost on the first day of the week. What's that? The Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. So this is all I want us to understand here tonight as we look at this passage. It's great for us to understand, even in this narrative text, this interesting little vignette that we get a look into the ministry of the Apostle Paul and his love for the church, that God in that and through that has shows us that he perfectly planned the day on which the Lord would rise from the dead, which would be the day that the church begins at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And it's the day in which we worship and honor Christ through the hearing of his word. All throughout the age. We have a great and mighty God. A great and mighty God. Of course, we notice in verse 17, from Miletus, he sends to Ephesus from Miletus, and he calls the elders to him. We're going we're gonna to get to that whole section next time, but I, I just want to review a little bit about this Sabbath idea because I think sometimes it can be confusing in the church. The Mosaic Covenant is no longer binding. We understand that. It's not binding upon anyone, particularly on believers, right? Colossians 2, 16 and 17. We read it. It says this, don't let anybody hold you to a Sabbath. That was a shadow. We know we now have Christ. Christ is our substance. So there's no more binding Sabbath law. We're not under the Mosaic economy. We're not under Mosaic law in that sense. There are no more of the Sabbath rules. It's no longer necessary for us as Christians to observe feasts, festivals, new moons, all these kinds of things as requirements according to some kind of religious ritual as it says in Colossians 2 and Galatians 4. We don't do that. We're not under that. But that does not mean, when we say we're not under the Sabbath law or the Sabbath rules, that does not mean that the seventh day of the week, Saturday, is a day that we just don't have to pay attention to. I think we do. I think there's some importance tied to that. In fact, back in Genesis chapter 2, what does God do? God creates, right? Six days he creates, and what's he do in Genesis chapter 2 on the seventh day? He rests, right? He rests. So he blesses it in this way that every seventh day, every seventh day of the perpetuation of time which God created is that perpetual memorial that ought to remind us of what God has done. He has created the universe in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested, 
and he blessed that day. And in blessing that day, he simply said this, every time the seventh day rolls around, that's a good opportunity for you to stop and glorify me as creator. I want to I want to have this as a reminder on us because in Genesis, there is nothing there that says anything in Genesis chapter 2 about man resting. It's God rested. It's God created, God rested. It was a day set aside by God for us to remember what God did. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy Because it's a day in remembrance. Seventh day was not a day designed for man to rest. It was a day in which God rested. Remember, this is before the fall. There is no fall that's happened. Adam is in the garden. He didn't need rest. He was living in perfect rest with God. There was no need for Adam to have any kind of rest. He was permanent in his rest. The fall comes in Genesis chapter 3. We're talking about being in a right relationship with God. Adam, Adam was in, before the fall, a perfect relationship with God. He was in continual rest with God. Right? It was this delightful relationship that was going on as Adam walked with God in the cool of the day, even in his activity, even in his physical exertion of of caring for the garden as God had told him to care for it, he was still in perfect rest. He didn't need a day of rest. And so every day, every week, I should say, that the seventh day rolled around, his life of being with God in that perfect state of rest, he could celebrate the fact that God had created in six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. I think it's important for us to remember that as Christians, because as Christians, we can enjoy the sense of the seventh day, right? We ought to give God glory as our creator. We ought to remember what God has done, both physically and spiritually. On the seventh day, right? We, throughout history really, and and the Judeo-Christian influence upon even the history of the world, we've really treated the sixth day like that, right? Or the seventh day like that. It's that day in which uh, we work five days a week, Saturday comes around, and what do we do? We normally just enjoy creation. We enjoy what God has created. It's not a day of worship in the sense that the first day of the week is. It's not that day. Certainly in enjoying that day and enjoying God as creator, we are worshiping God as as the God who has created all things. But in doing that, we are enjoying what God has created. We're enjoying His creation, and that brings delight to God. But all the Sabbath law, that law given by Moses, all of that was finished. All of that was done with the cross of Christ. Put away. The law of the Sabbath was done away. and 
the new covenant is here because of Christ. Sabbath law was a reminder to them that they they couldn't do anything. They 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 didn't enjoy creation as God had intended because they couldn't do anything. They had to sit in their homes, think about their sin, think about all that they needed to go through, all the things they couldn't do, any work, and they sat around just thinking about God and them as a sinner before the God. So they were reminded of the law of God. They were reminded of their own sin. But when Jesus Christ came, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, everyone who would ever believe would be out of the bondage of that. And ceremonial law of the Sabbath was set aside. They are set free from those kinds of things. So we as Christians, we don't observe that. We don't observe the Sabbath laws. We we worship on Sunday. We remember We remember the creative order. We remember what God did in six literal days as he created the world and the heavens and the earth and all of its glory. He is that great, glorious creator. But but when it comes to the first day of the week, it comes to that day, that's the day that we gather together to worship. That's the day where we come as God's people, not to worship God primarily as creator, but we worship God as Savior, as the risen Lord. And so here's these Christians on the first day of the week, gathering together. They're worshiping and celebrating Jesus Christ, and they're worshiping Him through the hearing of the Word of God. Paul is preaching. Paul is preaching to them. Right? He is the one, Christ is the one who brought us back to that permanent rest that Adam had before the fall. We are in that rest. That's exactly what Hebrews chapter 4 says to us. Let us enter that rest. Let us enter that rest. So this is the rest that we are in now. We are in Christ. Set aside all of that. Right? I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 3. Right? For he who have believed enter that rest just as he has said. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since there remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter it because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today. Saying through David, after a long time, he has said, been what has been said before today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. See, the rest now is permanent in Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ in which we enter that permanent rest. And it's on the Lord's day that we celebrate that rest. We celebrate that permanent rest we have in Jesus Christ, and we worship and glorify our Creator who has created the world in six days, and we can Enjoy that creation as God has set forth for us to enjoy. 
this is how we love the church. We love the church by hearing the Word of God. We love the church by being with God's people and worshiping Christ through His Word. This is why it's essential, essential, non-negotiable, always must be in the church that the central focus of the church is the preaching and hearing of the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, your word is true. So helpful to us as we think about these things to have practical answers, practical understanding. Lord, thank you for the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and how you unfolded the church. How on the first day of the week, Christ rose from the dead and every perpetuation of that has gone on throughout the ages that we might celebrate our Savior, Jesus Christ. We gather. We gather on the Lord's Day. We gather to worship on that day, not because of some legalistic sense in which we think we gain some spiritual reality because we come on Sunday, but because this is the day you set forth, that you would rise from the dead. And so we celebrate our new found life in Christ on that day. This is indeed the Lord's day. So we praise you for that, Lord. Help us to love the church by being a part of it as we gather together in times like this. Open your word together and to hear from you. So bless each one now as we go out, Lord. Help us this week to be testimony for Christ. All to your glory we pray in his name. Amen.